Heavenly Father, because you are sovereign over all things and all things hold together in Christ and this world is sustained by your power and you never grow tired or weary and you never sleep. God, we can, we can take these next 30 or 40 minutes and know that our inboxes don't need to be attended to. Know that unread text messages don't need to be replied to. Know that laundry that needs to get folded will wait for us. The chores that need to take place, the grocery shopping and to-do lists, the exams to be studied for and homework to do, boxes to exercise checked off, God, that all those things will wait because you hold all things. So grant to us this time an ability to have an undivided attention to your word as you speak to us, because you always speak perfectly. You always speak in a way that can be trusted. And you always speak in a, in a, in a way that, that, that ultimately, even where it challenges, will build us up. So God, I ask that you'd speak clearly to us in this text that is full of so much kindness and beauty and grace that by the work of your spirit, God, it would go deep into our hearts and into our lives. Father, we can get the truths of your word. We can understand what it says apart from your help, but we cannot believe it or feel it or respond to it apart from you helping us. So come and infiltrate our hearts, help our minds to engage. God, and what we ask and pray for every week as we gather together, the thing we need most, the thing that every single person, I can, I, I can pray this every week with knowing that it's true whether someone has been a Christian their entire life or whether they don't yet know who Christ is and they're not even sure how they ended up here this morning. God, what we need more than anything else is to leave this time more impressed and more confident in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and all that Jesus promises to do. Holy Spirit, would you lift Christ up that you might draw us after him? In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Feel free to grab a seat. Now, by the time we get to verse 36 in this very real scene of a woman coming into what would have been a formal dinner, um, Jesus was not unknown to people. In, the, in this region, there had, he, really, he wasn't unknown. He was notorious. There was a buzz spreading around Jesus as he went about the, the, the area um, teaching and going about the area healing people. And, and one of the things that happened in his notorious reputation amongst really would have been the religious elite, they began to talk about Jesus. And you can go a few verses earlier from this scene, just a few, and it talked about Jesus, that, that he was the guy who showed up to the parties so much that they called him a drunkard and a glutton. And then they chastised him, labeled him with this kind of libel, said he is a friend of sinners and of tax collectors. And so as we come to this scene in verse 36, there's a Pharisee who is one of the religious leaders of the time, very uh, upright, a lot of cultural clout. He invites Jesus to come and to dine with him. And, and what we see in these, these, this story is really two main characters, this, this one named Simon and then this woman of the city who is a sinner. Now, both of these figures, both Simon and this woman, were very interested in Jesus, but they were interested in different ways and for different reasons. See, their, their lives represented two very different realities. Simon was, had, had cultural clout. This woman was an outcast. Simon was the mostly put together, religiously respected, and this woman was the undeniably broken. One was very self-righteous, one knew of her unrighteousness. This little phrase, she was a woman of the city. I probably don't even need to unpack it for you. You probably already assume what it is, but at this time it was unmistakable. This was a woman who was a prostitute. And in this story, they're both interested. They both engage with Christ, but one is very self-dependent and the other is absolutely desperate. And the way they sought Christ transforms everything about what Jesus says in this text and in the parable that we will look at. I just want you to hold on to this distinction that this is not about one is religious and the other is irreligious. This is one that is, is self-dependent and the other is desperate. So we look at a study on parables. As we go through this, I'm going to give you a couple of interpretive keys as we go through this series. I um, won't do this every week, but, but one of the biggest keys as you're studying a parable, of which this parable actually begins not at verse 36. I want to be clear about that, but down in verse 41 when he begins a certain moneylender. He begins to tell this story. But one of the interpretive keys as you look at parables is you have to say, what is the context in which Jesus shared this story? 
Jesus shares stories in the midst of reality, in the midst of life. Something occurs, and then what he does is he shares a, a story because there's some truth or some reality that's being missed in one of the characters that this is happening. So he begins to share the story, and he has these two characters that are both interested in Christ, and he relates it now to two different types of debtors. He says, these two people, let's talk about two different debtors. There's one debtor that owns 50 denarii. A denarii was a a standard form of currency, a day's wage of a, of a laborer. So someone who owes about two months of income and then someone who owes 10 times that much, 20 months or so of income. And this, this, the, their debt is canceled. The person that they owe it to says, I am canceling your debt. What are we, what, one of the things we're gonna have to get is what are we talking about when we say debt? And we're gonna camp out here for a while. In the context of this text, debt equals sin. We see this clearly as Jesus unpacks or applies what he's saying to this woman in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Or we see it in verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Okay, debt is sin, but what is sin? Before I define sin from a biblical worldview, let me try and draw a parallel to our culture. Christianity for sure does not corner the market on both calling things sins or calling people sinners. Our culture just often uses different language for it. Let me give you the most extreme version of it right now. You're canceled. When our culture expresses this idea of being canceled, what we're seeing is you have not, you have not risen to the level of standard of which our culture expects you to behave. You have somehow not kept the cultural or social rules. You have not kept the norms, and so we are done with you. There's a consequence. You, you have rung up a debt that you now need to pay, and so we talk about people being Canceled, and now I'm gonna share some examples of this. So I'm gonna hit left and right. This isn't to argue for or against, so, so don't send me emails. Um, here's people that have been canceled, unless it's to encourage me. Um, send those, I need those. Here's some people that have been canceled recently. Mike Liddell, CEO of MyPillow. Canceled. <laughs> we might wanna withhold the amens for a second, but that's, that's okay. Now, you might argue why, but he was a very loud, and some of you would say mean, Trump supporter, J.K. Rowling. You like J.K. Rowling? You don't want to say yes right now because she's been canceled. But uh, she's pretty popular. Those books, they kind of took off, and lots of movies were created. She was canceled for questioning various gender ideologies. Colin Kaepernick. Canceled. Now, some... You cancel him because he can't play football. Some would say he's canceled because he took a knee. Police. Canceled. Some would say should be. Some would say this is a tragedy. Kanye West. Well, everyone's like, yeah, he should be canceled. <laughs> like, like immediately. <laughs> For... A never-ending stream of things he has said. Um, yee, right? Go, go yay. Um, maybe this one's too early after the last couple years. Any church that required masks, canceled. Done with you. On the other side, any church that didn't require masks, canceled. Basically, every comedian ever, someday. Cancel. Every sitcom from the 90s and the 2000s and 10, I mean, 
canceled. The woman in this passage, she'd basically been canceled. We know it from the way Simon thought to himself. He said, if Jesus really was a prophet, there is no way he would let this woman touch him. Because she would have been seen as a giant sinner, had no place at this dinner party. She would have been canceled. Oh, if Jesus knew, he wouldn't have sat. He would have recoiled. Canceled. Now, I'm not going to get into the arguments of the, the value of cancel, whether it provides accountability and holds, you know, makes people take responsibility. I think there can always be aspects uh, of this, and, and people do need to take responsibility for the truly stupid, terrible, and hurtful things they do and say and all that stuff. My point is this. Everyone has a standard. Every culture has a standard. Every person has a standard. If you're like, I don't have a standard, that's your standard. And everyone around you wants you to get a standard. (laughs) And when you fall short of that standard, a debt accrues. Now, in our culture, uh, politically, it it could be uh, political purgatory or your celebrity. It could be your Netflix series gets canceled. There's something that happens when you fail to achieve the standard that the culture puts forward. Our culture has their own standards. And this is a sermon for a different time that keep changing, by the way. That keep changing, by the way. But so does God. God has a standard, one that never changes. And when we fail to meet that standard, it's what the Bible calls sin. And it accrues a debt. Let me give you, um, it's kind of a pregnant uh, answer to the question of what is sin, but I think it's helpful. It's from the New City Catechism, uh, question 16. So what is sin? Here's how the catechism which is just a training tool of doctrinal truths, says it says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law or his standard, and it results in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So sin is not keeping the standard and it breaks everything. Sin is not keeping God's standard, and it breaks us, and it breaks the world around us. Now, one of the questions we want to ask then as we go back to this parable, so what is sin? It's not keeping the standard. Now, Jesus gives this parable, and there's one that has a certain debt, and there's another that has 10 times the debt. Is Jesus' point in this parable to try to highlight the differentiation of sinfulness between Simon and this woman, saying, look at this woman who is 10 times more sinful. That's why I'm telling this story. By no means. Jesus is not saying that. I'll try to show you why. Jesus is actually saying, Simon, as you sit here and judge this woman, you have no idea how much debt you owe. You have no idea how truly sinful you are. Let me give you another, and then I'll try to show you this, um, another handle for interpreting parables and and taking these, these these short stories and what do we do with them? The context really matters. What context did he give it in? But also, one of the things we want to do is not draw our primary doctrine from parables, but let parables illustrate doctrine. And so we're not, we're not trying to go and like, okay, I'm going to take every little piece of the parable, and why do you use a denarii? And he didn't use this. And why do you, like, we end up in the weeds there. He's just trying to make a point. He's saying those that know how much they've been forgiven, they will love and not judge. The Bible, we can go to the Bible, though. We can go to other parts of the Bible to actually get the doctrine of, of really how sinful we truly are. 
I'll give you Romans 3. It provides one of the most synthesized summary statements of every single person's condition. This is, now you don't have to agree with this. I'm just telling you, this is the biblical worldview. This is the biblical perspective of every single person that has or will ever exist. And in Romans 3, another part of your Bible is written by a guy named Paul who planted a number of churches and wrote half of the New Testament. Um, he is drawing from a number of Bible verses throughout the Bible and he's putting them all into one spot so that we can't dodge them. So let me give it to you. And this is in short saying everyone should be canceled. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, asps, I'm seeing, hear the P, I'm not swearing. Asps <laughs> is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible's testimony is that's everyone. That's us. And you might be like, I'm not really, I'm not that bad. Venom of asps, poisonous snake. Not really that bad. I would ask you this question. Compared to who? Compared to who? Simon, we know who he was comparing himself to. This woman of the city. This known sinner. Oh, thank God I'm not like her. I mean, I know I got my stuff, but come on. She's really messed up. Compared to who? Richard Lovelace in his book, phenomenal book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, he makes a really massive point. He says that before the love of God and the grace of God are real to you, before Jesus comes alive, before you, you can hear the truth, but before you feel the very heart of God that takes you out of the depth of Romans 3 and understand the debt that's been paid, there's two things that have to happen first. There's two kind of preconditions for personal renewal in our hearts and renewal in our society. The two things are this. We need to have an increasing awareness of God's holiness that he is holy, 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 that he is so infinitely other, that his moral perfections are beyond comprehension, that his so otherliness is so untouchable. And simultaneously an increasing awareness of our sinfulness. And as these two things happen, what it does is it raises our awareness. And I want you to hear this word awareness. It's not that it objectively changes. God doesn't become more holy. Just our awareness of his otherness, his perfections become more uh, dazzling in our sight. And it's not like we become more sinful, we're just more aware. But the, the more aware you become, the bigger debt, the bigger mess, the bigger brokenness, the more sin that actually gets exposed. This gap shows that. Right now, my garage looks terrible. Anyone else? Just looks terrible. One of my kids said, Dad, everyone's garage looks like this. I said, but not mine. But not mine, son. 
it's cluttered, it's dirty. Um, we had a dryer break over kind of the Christmas uh, break. And, and so we, we got a new washer dryer. And by God's grace, we actually have two laundry closets. This is like the most glorious thing ever. We, got, we had four kids, so big family. It was great to do the laundry. And so we, we, one of them broke. And, and so it was like, okay, let's get a new one to replace. It was like 20 years old. And, and so the, the guys that were supposed to come and take it out and install the new one, they, they installed the new one, but in the wrong closet. And so now the dryer had it. So I, so I had to take the, the washer and dryer. I have to get those down in my garage. I can't get the washer because it's too heavy. So if anyone wants to come help me, maybe we can make that happen. But, but that's still up on the second floor. But, but I got the dryer to the garage, but now my garage has a dryer. And then it also has a working washer and dryer that's stacked that's in that has to go upstairs. So you can help me on that too. So, so that's in my garage. And then some, some good friends, they had an extra smoker. That's awesome. Praise God. And they're like, I think it works. I think it's good. You just got to fix a few things up, and that's great. And my son was really hoping to smoke meat. And so I was like, this sounds great, but I don't know where to put the smoker. So now the smoker is in my garage. And then like everyone else, when Snowmageddon came and all the ice, the, 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 the sanitary company had to cancel picking up our garbage. And so as of just like a week ago, man, our, you know, with Christmas and the paper and the cardboard and the glasses and the bottles, like everything, the whole room was just full of, uh, full of, of garbage. And my family, we got so sick. We, we didn't, like, we lost Christmas. I'm so morbid. I was so frustrated that we lost Christmas. I was like, we have just lost at least three to four percent of the rest of the Christmases I have left. <laughs> you do the math. Um, we got rats. Now we don't. My wife just glared at me like, we don't have rats. Don't tell them that. We have had them before, though. We got rid of them. I also trapped a gopher. But, um, his shoes everywhere, dirty clothes everywhere. <laughs> you know, this guy needs to clean up his house. Yes, I do. But you know what? My garage looks great when the light's off. It looks great. I don't see any of the mess. I don't see any of the clutter. I don't see any of the broken stuff. I don't see any of it. But man, you flip that switch, that light goes on, you see it all. So you look at God, you look at his word, and you look at a standard, the light switch flips on. And it's not always insulting. Oh, goodness, I don't want you to hear that. But, but, it, but it sure shows us hard dad. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know we haven't kept the standard in our relationships, in our work ethic, in our thought life. And what God calls out, he says, that's sin. And when you become aware of that sin, you become aware of this debt, this gap between his holiness and our sinfulness. The debt is real. This woman of the city saw it, Simon Dinan. Um, God's standards are infinitely greater and unwavering and unchanging than our culture. And the debt we ring up is infinitely higher but so too is something that cancel culture cannot and will not offer you, and it's this, grace. It's grace, unearned favor. The canceling of debt is unearned. In this parable, that's what he says. It's not, it wasn't, okay, we're gonna put you on a payment plan. We're gonna figure out how to pay off what you owe. I know it's 20 months of, you know, it's you know, multiple years of salary. We, we, we can work this out. We'll, you know, we'll lower the interest rates. We'll put you on a payment plan. We'll garner some wages. We'll get there. It's not what the, the, the creditor does. He says, it's canceled. The debt is forgiven. There's nothing for you to do. Just receive. All is forgiven. Mr. Bean, 
Mr. Bean fans in the room, Mr. Bean spells out uh, what is so terrible with cancel culture, this impulse. He says it like this. He says, like a medieval mob looking for someone to burn. What was Jesus looking for in this text? He's looking for someone to save. He's looking for someone to cleanse. He's even looking to Simon to try to melt his heart. Increase in awareness of God's holiness, increase in awareness of our sinfulness, it, it opens us up to the greatness of God's grace. This parable is saying the greater the debt forgiven, the greater you see it, the greater the grace displayed. This past Thursday, I was um, working on the sermon in, in Makeworth um, down on State Street, and uh, I was just so overwhelmed by this text and how Jesus interacted with this woman of the city, that at some point, I just started to, I just started to cry. <laughs> I started to cry. I'm sitting at, this table, sitting at this table with my iPad, and I just started to cry. And at some point, I figured people were going to start to notice and come over and ask if I was okay. And so I just went to the bathroom, and I sat in the bathroom for a little bit, and I just kind of wept. And I just kind of cried. And then I couldn't get it together. You know, it's like, okay, get it together, Rob. Get it together. So I just left, and I went home. Um, <laughs> And here's why. If you look at this text, Jesus was so tender and gentle with someone that was so desperate and lost. The entire scene is stunning. I mean, this is a formal religious gathering. The Pharisees were the elite. Invites Jesus over in this, this woman of the city. She, she'd heard the rumors. Oh, wait, there, there, there's one that won't treat me like that. There's one that won't stiff arm me if I come and I just bear myself. I heard of this one. He's, he's called the friend of sinners. Maybe he would be mine. And so we know that, that, that she was preparing because she goes and she gets an, an alabaster jar. It's, it's likely very expensive perfume. And she comes and she finds him. And, and, and the scene here is, is they're gathered around. They might, they might be inside, but they also might be in like an outdoor courtyard. And there's all these people that are reclined at table. The way people would eat at this time at a party like this is they kind of lean against pillows, tables down towards the ground, very low. So they're not sitting in chairs. And she walks in. And the whole narrative of this text is seeing everybody there knew what her sin was. Everyone there knew what her brokenness was. Right? Simon's like, if, if Jesus knew who this was, there's something about her that everybody saw it. All the sneers and the glaring and the meanness and the, and the hypocrisy. And she doesn't care. That's, what, that's the thing. She doesn't care. She just comes in with this alabaster jar and, and she, she goes behind Christ and Christ is probably leaning towards the table and his feet are back this way. And at some point she just stands behind him and she starts to weep. These tears just begin to hit his feet. And we don't know why. We don't know why she's weeping. We don't know if these are, the, these are the tears of, oh, I've just made such a mess. It's tears of sorrow. It's just, man, I've broken things. We don't know if these are tears of, of fear and anxiety. Will he really be as good as people say he is? Will he really befriend me? Will he really save me? We don't know if these are tears of embarrassment with all these other eyes burning on her and judging her, the things that she has heard and seen and experienced and been so mistreated? 
We don't know if these are tears of, of, of just joy and hope by the feet of the friend of sinners. I don't know what they are, but I will say this. Anyone in this room that has come to faith in Christ that has met the friend of sinners that knows the debt that's been forgiven, you've cried all those tears. And then as they hit his, his feet, she, she crouches down and she undoes her hair and she begins, and this is, I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't a cultural practice. Just an adoration and devotion with absolute abandon from what anyone else might think. She says, oh, this is the one. And she just begins to wipe his feet and to clean them. And then she takes this alabaster jar of, of perfume, which is typically put on, on the head, and she says, oh, I'm just going to put it on his feet. The whole scene is just so stunning. And I think what really hits me is that what everyone else at the party wanted was for her to go away. But Jesus wanted her to come. He doesn't like when he, she went down to touch his feet, he didn't pull back. That would have been the culture expectation. He said, what are you doing? You don't belong here. Don't touch me. But Jesus just sits and receives her worship. Now, it's hard to recreate this text, but imagine walking in this church. A lot of us had to read the Scarlet Letter when we were in high school, Nathaniel Hawthorne, the story of someone who has committed adultery, and then part of the punishment is you have to walk around with a big Scarlet Letter, a big A on your clothes and say, I'm an adulterer. Imagine coming in this place and all the junk in the garage, all the clutter, all the mess, we all saw it. You walk in and your browser history is up there on the screen. Or someone put a camera in your, in your house or your car and, and captured the way you talked to your spouse or the way you reamed your children. Or someone could, could, could get inside your head or your heart as you drive by people in our city that you think are just lazy, begging, and the flinches that happen that, that, if we're honest, make us feel pretty terrible. Like it's all on display, and it was up there, and then you walked in this room, a bunch, a bunch of like put together religious people. That's what she was doing. Partly why I kept weeping is Jesus doesn't push her away, but he also defends her. Like he knows what Simon is thinking, and so he tells him this parable. That's the thing. He says, oh, you got it so wrong. Oh, your, your heart is so hard. Don't you see? Don't you see who she is? Don't you see what she needs? Don't you see what you need? And he defends her, and he, and he points to what the woman did in contrast to what Simon did, right? He, he does this in, in 44. He says, then turning towards the woman, he, he recognizes the woman, and he says, though, to Simon, not to the woman, yet he only speaks later to the woman. He says to, the, to Simon, he says, do you see this woman? And the, and the answer is, of course he did. He'd already been judging her. Simon had already been judging her. He's like, yeah, I saw her. She shouldn't be here. Oh, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss me. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Remember, they were both interested in Christ in some way, but they came from very different positions. He was self-important and she was desperate. And it says she has done better. This text is wonderful at the point that you see that Jesus actually recognizes her sin. 
See, he doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't say, oh, be kind. Be not, that's not nice. He says, oh, this woman whose sins are many. He doesn't gloss over it, but then he says, it's forgiven. See, that doesn't mean anything. The debt canceled doesn't mean anything. If you don't think you have a debt, if you think that forgiveness isn't needed, it only means something to the extent that you know it. The awareness of God's holiness and the awareness of our sinfulness, this gap that we can never bridge, the debt that we can never pay. And then, then it's canceled. Let's do a little thought experiment on this. Um, I want you to think about Simon and this woman of the city. Who do you think these lyrics would mean more to as they sang them? What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. See, she knew she needed to cleanse. She knew she needed pardon. She knew she needed wholeness. She knew she needed something that she couldn't get herself. Simon didn't realize it. And then we get into this refrain of this song, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Maybe help me with the end of it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, that's only precious to those that know they need it. That payment means something to those that know they have a debt that's so grand they can't ever get out from under it. And that's why we go on in that song and say, this is all my hope and peace. That's it. This is all my righteousness. See, the tragedy of Simon the Pharisee is that there is a, it's like a little bit of God's mercy, a little bit of his kindness, but a lot of Simon's performance. A lot of them keeping the rules, trying to keep the standard. But all of us know at some moment we go in, in the darkness of the night and the reality when a mirror is set up, when the light goes on in the garage, we failed the standard. What do you do? This woman knows. She runs to the feet of Christ in desperation. And the beauty of a text like this, this is for all and any who will believe. The question of verse 49 then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? It's never answered in this text. But it can be answered in this room. It can be answered in your heart. It can be answered in your response. It's an invitation to believe, to put your faith, to throw yourself on him, to throw yourself on him like, like this woman of the city did and say, I'm desperate and I'm needy and I need you to clean me and I need you to forgive me. And I got a debt I can't get out from. Can you cancel it for me? Now, I can't read this passage without thinking of another spot where a woman anointed Jesus with, with oil or with ointment or with perfume. And in this story, it's not on his feet. It's actually on his head. And it's the day before he was killed upon a cross. And as she came, she came into a party like this. She came into a gathering like this. And she took a jar, very expensive of oil, maybe a year's worth of income. And and she pours it on Christ's head. And, and just like this woman, people grumbled around her and told, said, what you're doing is wrong and this isn't okay. And Jesus, just like in this text, defends her and says, oh, you don't understand. She has done something beautiful. She's preparing my body for burial. See, what Jesus is saying, he's connecting all these and saying, for your debt to be forgiven, somebody else had to pay it. For you not to be canceled. Christ was canceled for you. See, that's the story of the gospel, the story of how God takes broken, needy, desperate people and says, I'm not gonna push you away. I'm gonna bring you in and I'm gonna welcome you 
And that's the story of what Christ did, that he came. He, he kept the standard. He never rang up the debt, ever. He kept it perfectly, flawlessly. The very law of God, if we go back to what is sin and we give this catechism definition, he always did it perfect. And then he went to a cross, and on the cross, what happened is he substituted himself for all that would trust. He says, I will take your debt. You, you assign it to me, and I will give to you. I will, I will lay upon you. I will credit to your account my righteousness that you will be seen clean and justified in the sight of a holy, holy God beyond any imagination. Our debt is so great, but God's grace is greater. That's this passage. That's the gospel. That's the story of Christianity. Oh, our debt is so great. But God's grace is so great, so much greater. It's two things you have to believe before you feel. I'm not saying to hear. You could, anyone in this room could probably articulate some of the things we're saying, but to feel them. Like Simon didn't feel them, but to feel them like this woman felt them. Increasing awareness of God's holiness and increasing awareness of our sinfulness, which lets us know the great debt that's owed, and then when we see the grace given to pay it, oh, you begin to feel it. And I'll do this quickly. This will be much faster than, than this first part, but I, but I want to apply this into what this parable is really pressing in to Simon. Um, there's two things that happen as you feel God's love. One of them is this. You begin to love Jesus more. Of the many parts of this passage that really moved me, I mean, this woman's devotion, with, she doesn't care, she's not embarrassed. She's, if, maybe she's embarrassed, but it doesn't keep her away. She says, I don't care who knows that I'm about Jesus. I don't care who knows that I'm down on his feet. I think of this scene in the movie Elf, you know, we're just coming out of Christmas time, and Elf, and, and Will Ferrell, he falls in love with somebody, and there's one scene where he runs into an office building, and he, he's swinging around, and he's, you know, waving his ears, and he flings his hat like a Frisbee, and he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. And I just watch this, and I just kind of, all right, not with me, all right. But, 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 but I just, I see this like, I'm about Jesus. Like I carry that into my school and I carry that into my sports team and I carry that into my business and in whatever ways are appropriate, but there's not this like shyness. There's just like, oh, do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done for me? I can't, I can't keep that contained. Here, have it all. And that's what she did. This this devotion that she, she brings in. You love him more the bigger debt you see. Um, I, I use this on Christmas Day, but it's too good just to keep during Christmas Day. Um, there was a, a performance of the song Amazing Grace, and it was taking place in New York City. It's a very famous singer, very ornate environment to be in, you know, incredible musicians to back this singer, just incredible voice. She begins to sing this, this classic hymn celebrating the grace of God, and she sings, and she, but she tweaks something. And I think in tweaking it, it just shows us our tendency to miss the beauty of really, truly flipping the light on in the garage and seeing the dead. She goes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a someone like me. You know, Simon, maybe that's how he, maybe, the, maybe he would have sung it that way. I, I think he would have been like, unneeded grace. How strange the sound. It's probably for someone else so unlike me. You hear the word that was missed? I mean, maybe help me out. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch. Yeah, we don't like to think about ourselves that way. But when you see it and you know the debt and you see the grace lavish, then what happens from this text? Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. 
See, as we go into this new year, this is one of the best, maybe this is the best strategy for cultivating your affections for Christ. If your heart has grown cold, if your affections have grown numb, here's what you do. Don't do more. Just look at the debt paid. Look at the debt paid. Let God let his holy light shine into the garage of your soul and show it's been paid. Show it's been paid. Those who have been forgiven much, they will love much. They will love much. Our debt is great. God's grace is greater. I'm going to give you one more, though. So there's two things that will happen as we get this. We'll love Jesus more. You know what else we'll do? We'll love everyone else more, too. Jesus told this parable primarily to Simon and for Simon's good. He said, your heart's not right. I want to try to challenge it and change it. I want to wake you up to grace so that you can love others and not judge them. Simon saw the woman very differently than Jesus. When Simon looked at this woman of the city, he judged her, he condemned her, he he elevated himself over her. Jesus just said, I want to care for her. Came across a blog post this past week by Trevin Wax um, titled this, Don't Let the Culture War Steal Your Joy. And it was great. It's just like, oh, we're so caught up in so much rhetoric and so much anger and so, so many really important issues too. Don't get me wrong. But he's like, don't let it steal your joy. If you're a Christian, like, you know how this ends up. There's hope and there's joy and Christ is coming back with a new creation. I mean, you know that Jesus wins in the end. Don't lose hope in the midst of all the fighting. Don't despair. Let me riff off of that and say it this way. Don't let the culture war steal your compassion. I'll give you, frankly, one of the things that has troubled me most over the last few years is not the things happening in the culture, of which there are many that trouble me. It's the vitriol coming from the church. It's the anger that's not paired with sorrow. It's just wrath and anger and venom and hatred. Quick judgments, criticisms, And it is, there, there is stuff everywhere. There is, it's most definitely in my own heart, as an aside. And it should make us angry. But grief and sadness, and compassion and kindness. The Bible says God does not even delight in the death of the wicked, but it feels like sometimes the way the church is speaking towards the culture is we'd rather have you just be gone than come into this place and find healing. Oh, we see it all around. We see it at school board meetings. We see it in viral videos. We, we, we see it in blog posts and Facebook likes. And we see it in private conversations as we slander and we, we malign those that just sin differently. The remedy to that one, same thing. A regular reminder of the debt that God has forgiven. It will tenderize your heart so that when you see the person come into the party, instead of wanting them to leave, you'll pull up a chair, or in this case, pull up a pillow and let him recline next to you. Jesus spoke this parable to Simon to make grace real to him. And now we don't know if he got it. There's nothing that tells us whether he did or he didn't, whether it clicked, but it can for us. And not by shying away from what we owe, but by seeing our mess in the light of God's word and coming in desperation to the only one that can forgive every debt completely. And when that happens... Love for him, love for others. Our debt is great, but God's grace is greater still. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we show up in this story in many places. We are like Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee. Too often we look at people through the lens of criticism and quick judgment, especially if their actions hurt, irritate, or inconvenience us, or if their sins are simply different than ours. Help us grieve this, Lord. Oh, forgive us our arrogance and our self-righteousness. That is not who we want to be. We're also this broken woman at your feet. Our sins are just as ugly and numerous as hers, even if they aren't public or as notorious. Help us to believe this, and by your Holy Spirit, convince us of it even more and more. Our confession is that you've forgiven in Christ all of our sins, past, present, and future, for which we give you great praise. But we long for our hearts to match our beliefs. Jesus, help us and change us and free us. We want a heart of humility and gratitude and love for you like we see in this woman. We want to love you much more, Jesus, than we currently do. You love us more than we could possibly imagine or hope. Our debt is greater than we know, and yet your grace is greater still. Holy Spirit, make Jesus come alive to us in all of his sin atoning, sinner cleansing, debt canceling, heart transforming kindness. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.